What's up, what's up, what's up? Welcome back to another episode of Modern Guilt, recording on a Tuesday morning, Australia slash New Zealand time. Damon is vaping away. I am sitting in the bedroom with the heater on because it's yeah. like cold but not cold. It's literally hailing outside right now. Well, and, I don't know uh, what I'm complaining about then. I've been enjoying this thing, but it's a, like really sneaks up on you. Hey, so I'm going to be um, not using it in a while. Uh, All right. But whatever. Coffee and a vape. Enjoy it while you can. So um, right after we put out our last episode, which you should go and check out if you have not already, because it was sort of a fun one. Uh, it was pretty unstructured and visited some of our <laughs> sort of unhinged frustrations. But um, our, our man, John McAfee, was found dead in his Spanish jail cell, which was, you know, heavy hearted news for us to hear. Mm. Yeah, you probably remember we did a whole thing on him. Um, I've loved McAfee, like as a chaos agent more than anything else. Um, mm -hmm. And like the mystique surrounding him, I think has always been really interesting. Most notably, or at least my favorite story has always been his blue light thread, uh, <laughs> which you can find and watch McAfee shortly after IPOing his uh, company or at least getting bought out or something. Um, fucked off to Belize, uh -huh. I think. Yeah. Uh, and disappeared into the jungle to allegedly, by his account, study antibiotics or something um, with some woman that he met in a bar who was a PhD researcher in antibiotics or some such. Mm -hmm. uh, but also somehow got entangled with um, fighting drug running or fighting like the local police. And then proceeded to shitpost aggressively about a drug called Tan MPV, I think it is, uh, which is effectively, I might be getting the like initialism wrong, but is this type of bath salt <laughs> that he had like made up and tried to get people to manufacture, um, yeah. all the while getting stalked by the fucking Belizean police. The whole thing yes. is completely shrouded in like confusion and mystery. I have no idea what's real, but. Uh, what is real is the fact that he was like accused shortly after of murdering his neighbor um, because his neighbor had killed one of his dogs and then he had to flee the country uh, only to be outed by Vice magazine <laughs> to his whereabouts <laughs> because a photo yeah. left like some geocoding uh, data on it or some shit. Yes. Amazing. So his little um, <laughs> run across the Caribbean on his yacht after fleeing from Belize was a pretty like hilarious and comical uh, and all-round surreal thing to witness from afar um, to, yeah. to read the reporting on that. I mean, because like even the major news outlets were reporting, you know, like John McAfee's like yacht has been spotted now, like, um, you know, in between these two islands. And like he had this ragtag band of, you know, uh, people sailing with him. It was like his wife and a couple of other like goons and a reporter or something like something out of some weird like stoner movie um, <laughs> like his wife uh, also like was this super young um like belizean prostitute who he just met and put a Married. ring on yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, so yeah a fascinating dude we've said it before or and i think we talked about it in our episode we did on him which i will quickly actually just bring up the title of for anyone who wants to look back and listen to who might be uh 
new to modern guilt. Um, armed with confidence and enough pain, I believe, <clears throat> was... Yes, that is our John McAfee special. Nice. Episode 18. Um, so in that episode, another thing that we mentioned was that he's probably the, the closest we had to a modern-day Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah. Channeled that same chaotic but bizarrely romantic energy. Was truly just, you know, his own man. Um, yeah, and did like a bunch of Gonzo-style antics, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, like driven by no clear ideology or motivations except for just the pursuit of hedonism and just <laughs> life, you know, Yeah, for better or worse. Mm. Not saying he was a good person or not, but just pure experience, you know, unfiltered, yeah. raw living was John McAfee. Oh, fuck um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, real sad news. So um, part of the story, like, leading up to it is people are suggesting that he may have been suicided. Because yeah. he had been making cryptic tweets and had tattooed whacked onto his arm uh-huh. and said that if he kills himself, that it is murder, essentially. And mm-hmm. that he was going to release, I think it was like 70 terabytes of data, which is an obscene amount um, by all accounts, uh, incriminating people. So the uh, masses, or maybe they're not masses, but <laughs> large amounts of like basement dwellers um have been you know forming conspiracy theories around this uh data dump or whatever that i haven't really been able to get my hands on i saw someone uploaded something to like uh github um and i tried to look into it but there was nothing really there that i could see so i i don't know if he was bullshitting he was also like a notoriously like just full of shit (laughs) yeah yeah i mean like i think he definitely (laughs) experienced like psychosis of some sort and was well and truly fried uh, like yeah. his descriptions of this like experimental drug that he was cooking up for himself and taking like on a daily basis for months on end was pretty <laughs> fucking mental and <laughs> like he described it as like the um the perfect junction between a stimulant and a psychedelic with like an extreme aphrodisiac effect yeah which would cause him to just have these wild orgies and just fuck anyone in sight and just like experience what he described as like pure heaven on earth for like days on end. Yeah. Um, so like <laughs> could well have been meth. <laughs> yeah. Well, I get the feel. So he came out and was like, oh, that was bullshit. Like I was just shit posting. Um, right. <laughs> there was no drug. I've been sober for years, but I, I don't fucking believe that. Like, you know, no, Man, no, no way. <laughs> he's too fucking mental. He was definitely on some sort of juice, you know? Yeah. Um, to keep him going. But yeah, the whole data dump thing is going to be interesting to see if anybody comes out of that with any information. But I, I doubt it. Like, his transition into a, like, uh, crypto grifter um, was pretty seamless. And that whole field, <laughs> as we mentioned in our last episode, is a lot of hot air. Apologies mm-hmm. to the crypto holders in the audience. Um, that's just one schmuck's opinion. <laughs> so happy to be proven wrong on it. But uh, shortly after McAfee's death was reported, an image with the letter Q was posted to McAfee's Instagram account. Later, McAfee's entire account, including the post, was deleted. The letter Q was seemingly a reference to the conspiracy group QAnon that led some to believe that McAfee's death had triggered a system that would leak secret government information. So now we're just in fucking la-la land. But that is bizarre. There's a screenshot of his Instagram here. Um, And, I mean, it's true. Uh, The Mm. most recent post was just a massive black Q. So 
you know, whatever meaning someone wants to ascribe to that, go ahead. Yeah. He's such a troll. I can imagine him like just doing that because he wanted to fuck with people and, you know, yeah, just leaving you at that and noping out of this fucking earth, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, whatever his motivations were, he managed to leave an interesting conversation in his wake. So, <clears throat> you know, that's probably a good testament to him. I'll link a strangely objective and morose obituary from The Guardian in the show notes as well, which um, surprises me because I would have thought that um, The Guardian would be publishing some like post-mortem hit piece on him about like <laughs> his like anti-woke lifestyle or something. Yeah. But I, I like the tone of this one, so um, mm. we'll share that. So R.I.P. McAfee uh, and to Janice McAfee, who we actually tried to get on the podcast once. Hope you're holding up okay. And I hope that things pan out well for her. Mm. I hope that he faked his death and he's got to emerge in a few years. But, you know. That would be amazing and nearly impossible, I'd imagine. Yeah, probably at this point. But uh, mm. we'll see. Uh, anyway, yeah. R.I.K. Sorry, R.I.P. Speaking of Janice McAfee, she has said that she wants answers. And his last words to me where I love you and I will call you in the evening. Those are words not of someone who is suicidal, she said, holding back tears. John McAfee's wife claimed U.S. wanted him to die in prison days before suicide. John McAfee's wife publicly claimed that the U.S. wanted the software tycoon not to die in prison. This is a horribly written article by CNN. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then they found him hanging in his jail cell. So I guess she's pretty much taking the whole murdered in jail whacked yeah yeah whacked thing maybe i mean the thing is though if he was um i'm more willing to believe it's by like some very angry crypto holders that were like severely grifted by him rather than uh the deep state and calling out the deep i don't think the deep state cares about john mcafee (laughs) well something that's really weird is and like i don't i don't know much about you know like the justice system in the u.s or whatever but I read that he was wanted for tax evasion to the tune of only around $4 million US dollars, which like in yeah. the grand scheme of things is not much money, but was facing charges that would likely have him in jail for the rest of his life, which seems disproportionate and like insane to me. Hmm. Like evading taxes worth $4 million sounds like it should be like maybe, I don't know, five years in prison or something like that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm just wildly speculating here, but... You know, throwing the book at him for that seems as though there was some sort of like agenda or like they wanted him extradited to the US on the tax evasion charges and would then hit him with something else and more, more dark, uh, more dark, darker, yeah. I should have said. But hey, we'll never know. I just, man, I can't stand this cock teasing. Like this is the thing that fucked me off about McAfee and all McAfee-esque characters is and like the whole thing around q is that there's this persistent like cock teasing of uh like oh any day now we're gonna drop the information and then you're gonna see biden walked out into jail <laughs> and it's just like dude just you've been saying this for fucking years like you know just shit or get off the pot you know like just cut it and he's claimed to have shit on google and like multiple different organizations yeah. Honestly, since like 2015, maybe even before then, constantly, uh-huh. you know. So, yeah, um, maybe I, I'm calling bullshit, to be honest, because where the fuck is the info is my thing. It's like the concept <laughs> like the most persistent um, rebuttal to all these stupid conspiracy theories is like, where, where is it? 
yeah, yeah. no of course yeah. stop just being um, like when i get suicided i'm gonna do this why then why not just do it now you're in fucking spain spanish jail like your life can't get any worse bro <laughs> you know what i mean yeah yeah so speaking of um walking biden into prison i'm amazed that we haven't already talked about this but did you see the mental hunter biden screenshot with his cousin no oh man you're gonna love this this is right up your alley as a as a hunter biden stan um (laughs) (laughs) so the um new york post who you'll remember was the publication who initially started publishing the the wilder hunter biden like ukraine related conspiracies after his laptop allegedly turned up in a new jersey repair store yeah um this came out on the 16th of june now so it's like sort of old news but like you and i haven't talked about it so we'll just do it um headline hunter biden called asians yellow in text exchange with cousin and there's a script like to me like whatever that's like neither here nor there but there's a fucking screenshot like from um iMessage and this is an exchange with his cousin and i'll read the conversation to you as it goes so uh, this is hunter biden's cousin starting the conversation She's a legend. None of these women are except for Deva. But Nicola and Deva and Alla and Lucy will all know quality girls who are like I am, distrusting and highly, highly wary of evil. I also have Denise, a German, 26. Hunter responds, no to Lucy, I think. Cousin responds, okay, so fine. Do you want foreign or domestic? Hunter says, and you have to make the pitch directly. Cousin responds, I can't give you fucking Asian, sorry. I'm not doing it. Hunter responds, domesticated foreigner is fine. Cousin responds, I give you Isabella, but she has kids and an NBA ex-husband. Hunter responds, no yellow. What I, What are they doing? Well, it sounds like he's ordering off a sex menu. Mm. Um, yeah. Which is like weirdly not addressed in this article. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, he used the word yellow to describe an Asian person, but they're not, not you know, drawing any attention to the fact that his co- oh okay his cousin's name is caroline biden um but they're not really yeah addressing the fact that she seems to be like fully pimping girls out to him um, that's so but... fucking mental yeah, yeah. that seems to be the story yeah <laughs> it's why so are they still weird. trying to cancel him on the race card it's so dumb rather than yeah like, right yeah um but as you can imagine <laughs> just like um not a peep from any other news outlets i think it, this was like shared by like three publications and that's all yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> it's pretty much a non-story, but just weird as fuck. Yeah. Where is no. Hunter Biden right now, and what is he doing? Like, <laughs> let's <laughs> move on from John McAfee and ask questions about fucking Hunter. Hunter is the new McAfee, though. I know? think he. There's still room for him to run. He could be. It's not the top oh, yet. Yeah. 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 No, he seems like a highly. That, that's going to be a good story for a long time. You know. Yeah. yeah there's so much more to more to come from that. Yeah. Um, especially like post Joe's presidency, Hunter will just continue to do weird shit. Um, and it'll just be like, it'll drip feed us for years. Yeah, fucking A. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Nice one. So, one of our listeners um, hit us up recently in response to the episode we did where we talked about Norilsk, the Russian mining town in Siberia built on the back of Gulag prisoners, and suggested that we check out the uh, Global Palladium Fund. So that sounded interesting, and check it out, I did. Um, This particular listener suggested that we might have a hard time finding the uh, necessary information on the fund because it's recently been buried online by uh, newer stories. But 
Um, there are a couple of little interesting things that I found about it. Yeah. Well, first of all, I had to teach myself about palladium because I knew only that it was a rare metal and nothing else. So it's like an interesting one because it, it's only created as the byproduct of mining nickel and copper and comes in like really like small quantities. So it's very hard to like gather and refine. And the global supply of palladium is only in 2016. Um, the global production was only 208,000 kilograms. Wow. 208 tons. Um, yeah. Which, Do we know what this is used for? Yes. So it is <laughs> used in a variety of uses, all of which seem like somewhat obscure and unrelated, but it has limited use in jewelry dental equipment, watchmaking, aircraft spark plugs, surgical instruments, electrical contacts, which are like um, parts of like transistors. Um, but the most common use for it is in um, what are called catalytic converters, which um, are part of the exhaust system of internal combustion engines, which um, partly capture and convert some of the most toxic gases and chemicals that come out of the like uh, engine process um and yeah. convert it into carbon so there have been huge price fluctuations throughout history because there are only a handful of sites in the world that actually produce a meaningful amount of palladium i think 44 percent of the globe world's palladium supply comes out of norilsk and siberia yeah. um, which presents its own unique set of issues as you can imagine if you've listened to our previous episode on Norrell Squitch um for me it was a personal favorite I really enjoy <laughs> the details behind that so you should go and check it out if you can yeah so for example in the year uh, 2000 the Russian supply was disrupted hugely leading to a chronic global shortage and then like hoarding behavior starting all around um which led to to Ford um as in the automobile producers panicking um, and starting to stockpile. During this period, the price spiked wildly and then fell so far the next year once production was able to increase again that Ford lost nearly $1 billion worth of value in those assets. God damn. So now, um, because of the, the price fluctuations, the likes of China, who apparently at the moment use the most palladium out of any country in the world, are like secretly stockpiling as much as they can. And Norilsk has started what's called the Global Palladium Fund, which they describe as being like this attempt to almost like democratize the palladium supply and make sure that everybody has access to this, this important mineral and that by fairly distributing the palladium supply, they'll be able to um, enhance technological innovation and <laughs> environmental solutions to, to automobile production and whatnot. Um, but when you look at uh, all of the stockholders in the Global Palladium Fund, they're all essentially Russian oligarchs who are tied to uh, Vladimir Putin, who was the guy that, if you remember, seized control of Norilsk Nickel um, through super shady means um, when the Soviet Union collapsed and Russia Russia's economy was opened up. The guys who own the Global Palladium Fund are all... Yeah, either associated with Vladimir Putin or like minority interest holders in Norilsk Nickel. These guys started buying up a lot of surplus palladium in 2016 when the, the fund was launched. 
which led to the global price spiking. Um, and they're now offering the Palladium-backed crypto tokens for the public. So they essentially, you know, hoarded as much Palladium as they could and are now offering investment opportunities under the cover of this sort of like altruistic opening up of access to Palladium investment. So Via crypto? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Via crypto. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> like, I, I think the... Um, I think the platform actually does sound like secure and legitimate, but it's um, just the way that they've done it is is very interesting. Yeah, like they've managed to theoretically, when the gold standard was created, yeah. you could swap your dollars for gold, and that was uh-huh. something that you could do. You know, so yeah. like my question of all these like backed by initiatives, like what does that mean? Am I going to be able to get like some uh, palladium? Palladium. palladium? Yeah, right. I I, you know? I get what you're saying. Or, yeah. Are you just saying that we're tracking the price of it? In which case, you are setting the price. You know, like how, how does that work? I don't know. To carry on, but like no, no, yeah. I mean, I it's, a very, you know. it's a very fair question. Yeah, and I mean, okay. Let me have a quick look. Yeah, fuck it. I don't know. Anyway, so it it presents an interesting, I guess, sort of investment angle to consider. Because if you look at the the price chart, there are like these massive fluctuations, and because production is limited to only like a few facilities globally, um, there's like one large site in Montana in the U.S., one site in Canada, one in Russia, which again produces forty four percent of the global supply, one in South Africa, and there's exploration happening in Australia at the moment. So like, mm. it's crazy the amount of disruption to the global supply that you know, can come from having only these small handful of facilities producing it. So interesting investment angle, although like personally, I see, so you can, you can get into the global palladium fund through European exchanges. I think Yeah, they're listed as an ETC an exchange traded commodity. Right. As far as I can tell. Um, otherwise you have the, the blockchain option. So you can buy this coin. What's the coin called? Do you know? I've just hit um, start investing on their website. I'll I'll read (laughs) their mission statement off the the website here as well to describe it better than I probably did. To make the world's base, rare and precious metals accessible to everyone, the Global Palladium Fund strives to advance the development of world-changing technologies in essential areas such as aerospace, electronics and the automotive industries to help make the world a better place. We care about our planet deeply and stand ready to ensure that its resources are spent wisely where they are needed the most. Um, Which sounds like, yeah, Russian trolls. Um, Yeah, okay, so you need to fill out a form um to apparently invest in this token maybe if i was to dig a little bit deeper i would be able to find some alternative means but yeah right yeah so with the death of the internal combustion engine uh impending though i would be uh hesitant to stake a lot of money on palladium because that's its primary use um in the catalytic converters but there's actually a use that i forgot to mention i think earlier which is in hydrogen fuel cells so they would be super speculative but um if fuel cell technology was to advance sufficiently there's a world in which palladium could become possibly the most sought after metal in the world um i should note as well that there have been times where palladium the price of palladium has actually been higher than gold per ounce um making it the most precious precious metal in the world at the moment 
um, the, the quantities of palladium needed to operate a fuel cell efficiently are too high for it to be economically viable. So if sort of more research was to be done in the field and they were to figure out a way to use less palladium to achieve the same outcomes more efficiently, then you might have the likes of GM who are committing billions and billions of dollars to fuel cell development at the moment, um, EV push, or you know, alongside their EV push uh, could be a huge buyer of palladium. And you have China and the Global Palladium Fund sitting on the whole fucking lot. Man, so, China and Russia have this shit in the bag. <laughs> They're just yeah. biding their time, buying up all the debt, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's fucking interesting. Um, so shout out, listener. Um, I won't um, give Dogs. your Twitter handle on um, on the pod in case the public choose to hunt you down and harass you. The Russians. <laughs> yeah, nice, nice, uh, nice tip there. So... Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, fascinating. Please, to, yeah. Keep, oh, I was just going to say, please keep him coming if you yeah. have any more uh, little suggestions. It's fascinating to see these large um, holders of commodities who are really sort of orchestrating the prices and everything. You know, like the most obvious one is OPEC, um, fucking with the fuel price and everything, yeah. uh, which is yes. just like a very open cartel. And there's no way yeah. around it. Like, that's just all they are, basically. Uh, but you know, I think rare metals is going to be more and more um, controlled by just a very small number of massive whales, and then mm. the rest, anyone speculating on it, is just going to be at their uh, at their mercy. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it definitely seems that way. It's it's really interesting when I was um, looking up this palladium stuff as well. Like um, all of the sort of loosely related uh, results in in Google, like further down the uh, the results listings we're all touching on the fact that rare metals are just in shortages across the board right now. Mm. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't know um, if there will be like a correction moving forward and supply will, will rise to meet the growing demand. But right now, um, anything from like cobalt, copper, nickel, uh, I mean, obviously palladium, um, it's all in such hot demand. It's, it's fascinating. So, Yeah. I heard a take recently, actually, that like there are some good plays in gold miners, uh, like already established gold mine operators, uh, in terms of like stock stock picks. Yeah. As like your sort of, I guess like hedging against possible inflation, like at the source. Yeah. Rather than buying gold, like buy gold miners. Well, was... Warren Buffett was uh, made the news last year for buying into Barrick Gold, the largest gold producer. Ah, there you um, go. He sold out the. So, you know, huh. it was a weird move where he like invested heavily into them and then dumped his position pretty hard. Oh, um, interesting. Presumably to buy up more Berkshire Hathaway stock that he's in love with. Um, yeah, so okay. Good, good on them, I guess. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the argument's definitely there, you know. Mm. But so there's another type of uh, hoarding of a precious resource happening at the moment as well um, that I was looking into. Um, sorry to monopolize the uh, show and tell, but... Um, nah, fuck no. Go hard. Um, in Northeast Africa, uh, in the Nile Basin right now, there is a lot of controversy arising because of a project called the um, Great Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. Mm, hang on. I'm going to... Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. Sorry. Yeah. Which Ethiopia has um, nearly finished construction on 
um, on one of the sort of two major tributaries tributaries of the Nile River. Um, now, is it so the Blue Nile, uh, which runs from Lake Tana in Ethiopia uh, to uh, the junction of the Blue and White Nile in Sudan, which then forms the Greater Nile River, which runs through Sudan uh, into Egypt. The, the Blue Nile um, feeds 85% of the, um, the downstream water supply into the, the Greater Nile, which, as you can imagine, Egypt relies on to a staggering extent for yeah. its uh, fresh water and food supply. So Ethiopia have um, started or nearly finished construction on this colossal dam, which will be um, the largest hydroelectric dam in Africa and is a uh, collaborative project uh, from companies from countries all over the world and in itself represents an interesting sort of like nexus of, I guess, foreign commercial interests, which maybe we can touch on in a little bit. Um, but yeah. the idea essentially is that this dam will provide uh, enough hydroelectricity to support uh, Ethiopia's entire uh, modernization and development effort, plus surplus to um, to ship to Sudan and Ooh. other neighboring countries. Ooh, Bill Gates, watch out. Jeffrey Sachs, fucking <laughs> I don't even need you. I'll quickly send you um, an image of this so you can get an idea of the fucking scale of this bitch because it's quite impressive um <laughs> that thing is big holy yeah, man. shit man seeing stuff like that just as a quick aside makes yeah. me marvel at like i mean we touch on incompetence and um you know like human disaster and the limits of what we can control but like there's something to be said for what we can build you know and like just large projects that can be executed well. Oh, what absolutely never cease I, to amaze me. I find it astonishing. Yeah, how people can be so obscenely incompetent as individuals, mm -hmm. and yet so insanely like we're like the super species as long as there's like a singular, well-defined goal with clear metrics outlined. You know what I well, mean? Well, it's it's uh, the dollar bills, right? Yeah. You know, I think it, as long as there's there's fat stacks at stake, then it's like move aside. I'm going to build the largest dam in Africa. Yeah. Um. So, this this um project takes place in interesting sort of like geopolitical context because, um, if you look at um the sort of sort of northeast slash Horn of Africa region, there are a lot of um opposing interests. So. There's historically been a lot of tension around how the use of the uh, the water of the Nile River is used, dating back to uh, actually the 19th century, um, when like European colonial interests started to try and um, establish kind of like rules and laws about how the river should be used, um, including about a dozen treaties with sort of a variety of countries that are sort of um, former states that were uh, old colonial kind of uh, administrations and, and now current states that so these treaties have sort of like been formulated and I guess technically elapsed over time um, meaning that these countries now sort of have the freedom to I guess exercise their like quote sovereign rights um, yeah. over the use of the water that flows through their country so on on one hand 
you have Egypt and Sudan, um, who are the two most downstream countries on the Nile, who are close allies and work together closely um, in terms of how to you know, regulate the use of the water. And then Ethiopia, which is uh, where the, the source of, uh, like I said, 85% of the water running into the Nile comes from, have positioned themselves as somewhat of a villain in, uh, in East Africa at the moment um, and are playing hardball about um, negotiations about how to sort of regulate the, the water supply and whatnot. There's Ethiopian sort of militias who are not formally backed by the government but are kind of like rogue groups on the border of Ethiopia and Sudan have um, occupied a lot of land at the moment and have driven out the Sudanese military in that area. <clears throat> at the same time, in northern Ethiopia, a sort of semi-autonomous um, ethnic group have started their own uprising, which the Ethiopian government have called on uh, the neighboring government of Eritrea to help them uh, quash. So there's this sort of powder keg of, uh, I, I guess, um, resource disputes and like simmering military action happening in the region. And to put the cherry on top of this, Egypt have publicly stated uh, right from the top from uh, their president, Abdel al-Sisi has said that Egypt won't allow a single drop of water to be stopped by that dam and they have threatened military action if uh, the Ethiopians start to fill the reservoir on their side of the dam. It's somewhat worrying because Egypt probably has the most competent military in Africa. They receive possibly multi-billion dollars worth of aid on a yearly basis from the United States um, and have started to form uh, intelligence sharing agreements with uh, other countries in the region, including uh, Uganda, uh, Uganda, Uganda, <laughs> um, Rwanda, and uh, South Sudan, essentially encircling the Ethiopians. Ethiopia itself is a pretty uh, powerful nation in terms of uh, the East African region, uh, and has said that they won't roll over. Um, now, if Ethiopia start to fill the reservoir on their side of the dam as they plan to, they will reduce the um, flow of water uh, that Egypt receives from the Nile by 25%, uh, which paired with the sort of impending climate crisis, basically drive millions of people from uh, the farmland in sort of like regional areas of Egypt to either the city centers where they'll be overwhelmed and inundated with uh, water refugees, yeah. or those people will have to try and make their way to Europe. Um, so, I think this is really interesting because it's potentially the first of what people speculate will become water wars um, as the demand for fresh water becomes greater and greater, uh, which it only will. You know, what are we going to do? So yeah. it's one to keep our eye on. Yeah, well, uh, that is a fascinating sort of area, you know, um, mm. especially when you had, I think he may have retracted his statements or maybe he didn't, but the CEO of Nestle, uh, had famously come out saying that water should be priced and that it should be, yeah. um, you know, not a public good for all, mm -hmm. but rather yeah. a private commodity. So corporate interests have definitely looked at it. Um, and then on a previous podcast, real previous podcast hours here, you know. Yeah, yeah, um, we're doing throwbacks. Yeah, we talked about like Harvard's big fund buying up large amounts of land with aquifers underneath it. Um, mm. You know, 
clearly trying to hedge against or profit off uh, potential water shortages in the future. future. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, and another yeah. thing that I haven't uh, read deeply into, but apparently now you can also, for the first time, buy water futures. Oh, God. I was just going to make a joke about buying options on water. That's yeah, no, ridiculous. you can. Um, apparently, it, it's like uh, Californian water or something is, um, is now available on the market. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Something else which is like fascinating about the dam project, which I mentioned, but I guess I can elaborate on, is that like there are all of these um, large corporate interests from foreign countries sort of all getting their, their fingers in the pie, so to speak. There's, uh, I think, five Chinese companies involved with like the construction of the dam, and then Italian and French companies are providing some of the like, or the majority of, not some, of the um, like hydroelectric equipment, like the turbines and whatnot. So you have like these sort of uh, commercial drivers from foreign countries that like want this project to go ahead, regardless of the geopolitical implications. So like, once again. Africa has sort of become the plaything of um, of these foreign powers, and the EU has stepped in to uh, quote mediate the uh, scenario, but Ethiopia has just essentially told them to fuck off. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because you can imagine the um, the EU's involvement um, in the, the whole project would essentially be there to safeguard um, the the outcomes of the dam, as opposed to I think put the interests of these countries first or um, pursue an end point which would um, I guess f- mitigate the potential um, the potential uh, refugee kind of dynamic there yeah so what do you do that's the question you know like mm. more and more uh, it's looking like we're pushing it into this like Mad Max scenario which if anybody hasn't seen I'd check it out it's quality uh, you know we're essentially we're living in this total fucking um dissolved civilization where everything becomes like hyper precious uh that we took for granted like oil and water and uh and mad max breast milk (laughs) (laughs) you know and like if that starts to eventuate there's only going to be a few places in the globe where you can actually live without having to be subjected Um, to this horrific nightmare of scarcity well did you hear that peter till literally bought a bunker in the south island of new zealand yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Smart man. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, in terms of what do you do, it's a good question, and I and I don't know the answer. And this is this is just an absurd notion that I don't necessarily support. But like, just right now, as I think about this, like the only solution I can imagine could even come close to working would be some sort of global state. You know <laughs> what I mean? Some sort of global governance of resources to ensure that there is like. Uh, a fair distribution and whatnot and like reasonable rationing for everybody that needed it but then that's just its own its own form of tyranny you know <laughs> and it's, it um, contravenes so much of what like humanity in general has has strived for so long to avoid no bro if it's backed by crypto it'd be 100 percent the chip. yeah <laughs> yeah a blockchain enabled police state bro <laughs> <laughs> yeah speaking of at some point, we need to do a follow-up on the social credit score because post-watching can't get you out of my head as well as like diving into the credit score a little bit mm-hmm. um, and seeing you know that idea get introduced. 
more and more across uh, different states. I think it's going to be interesting to see that your own goodwill or uh, compliance as a citizen could be its own currency, which is probably the ultimate tool of control. Um, you know, in my mm. eyes, if you were ever to create a totalitarian state, it'll very realistically be revolved around like rewarding your compliance and punishing your disobedience, but in ways that are like not super nefarious, not like you're going to get hung from the gallows, but more that, you know, you're not going to be able to like function very well. Um, one of the yeah, things well, that, it, yeah. it already happens to an extent on social media, you know, oh, yeah. um, the, the constriction of uh, discussion of certain topics um, on, you know, Twitter particularly is is a really good example. It's like, you know, if you don't want to, you know, be a good citizen and talk about the things that are permitted, then you'll be uh, shut out of the conversation and you won't be able to use what is essentially like at this point a public utility, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But that's a decentralized economy as well right now. Like it's running rampant, you know, there's no mm -hmm. centralized control and currency um, that is like being instituted, whereas the social credit score is like a backed institutional metric True. for like good behavior, which is really interesting, I think, because that could totally carry across to like the decentralized nightmare of just like Twitter brigading, firing people from their jobs and like ensuring that people are, you know, talking about the right things. Mm -hmm. um, I brought up to Hayden before we started chatting, dear listener, about this shitty article I read in The Economist um, about women who are getting and the reason i'm not bringing it up is because it was just a crap article uh you know like lona sort of discovers the real world type article <laughs> in which this um model turned sociologist went around to these uh exclusive clubs for multi-millionaires and tech tycons tycoons tycon tycoons tycoons um, <laughs> and investors that go to like lavish parties and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on alcohol in a single night uh and that there's this like not i mean essentially what she was describing is like and within these clubs you know beautiful thin models get let in for free to hang out it's almost like trafficking and it's like yeah that every club i've been in i've like they'll happily find a reason to keep you aside and then let in like you know a group of girls or whatever oh yeah 100 percent. it happens quite often it's not just for the rich and famous it's yeah, for yeah. us like us poor schmucks as well mm -hmm. um but what is interesting about that entire article that she was touching on is that um these women were getting flown around club to club basically uh, uh by these promoters and so the promoters yep. essentially have like a list of models that they'll just hit up and be like party in xyz tonight we'll fly you out you get to stay and but you have to go out every single night basically and be seen in these clubs and it's not like they there's no exchange of sex here yeah so of course because these people are fucking losers like the tech tycoon tech tycoons and the investors are like don't want to fuck them or maybe don't have the social acumen to but they just want to be seen around them. But essentially, um, she was trying to dig into like why the woman do like why would they do this? <laughs> you know, why would they go to a club? <laughs> it's like so outrageous. And what they were talking about is like one, you know, oh, I get free booze and I get to like network and socialize with a bunch of uh, wealthy individuals. Um, but two, it's like cultural club. You know, it's great for the Instagram. Of course, feed. yeah. Um, which again, uh, for the millionth time in this fucking podcast, is something that we talked about previously uh, in terms of like the unofficial economy, the prestige economy, which has emerged, you mm -hmm. know, and it's like this, it's not got a clear dollar attached to it or, you know, there's no 
numeric value, I guess, other than your followers and the amount of engagement that you get. But it's entirely its own form of currency um, mm, yeah, being absolutely. used. So yeah, it's just unofficial. I guess in like China, they can have that like really nice metric that if I'm like, if I have like 12 good boy points, um, I might get a haircut faster or have my like, you know, <laughs> dating profile, which allegedly is one of the things that if you are, if you do have enough good boy points, um, you can like have like higher visibility on your dating profile. Oh man, I would be happy with just the faster haircut. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Imagine yeah. that, man. Imagine never having to wait to get a haircut again. That'd be pretty fun. That in itself, that's its own form of co political coercion that would work on me. Oh, totally. Send me to the police state where you get fast haircuts. Well, the the creepier aspect of it is the fact that there's like, uh, you know, allegedly, again, um, that I haven't fact-checked it, but uh, allegedly you get like discounts as well, like discounts on doctor visits, discounts on barbers, discounts on all sorts of shit um, mm. that make your life a little bit more seamless and a little bit more less bullshit that you have to deal with. And of course, the flip side of that is if you like, if you have bad boy points, um, then you like, I don't know, life is like more difficult and harder for you to navigate. And that kind of parallels that prestige economy or, or whatever oh. we talked about, because like, yeah, totally. you know, the, the Instagram or cultural clout is different to the social credit points or, or whatever. But, you know, these, these women are literally accumulating goodwill. You know, that's the reason we do it. So like influencers often generate some sort of like meaningful income. They're like online presence, despite mm. what many people think. But like, it's that thing when you go to your like local bar, like you can expect to be recognized or like just treated well or receive somewhat favorable service or whatever like their lives are just like marginally uh insulated so that's yeah. an interesting parallel yeah um i don't know if i brought it up but there was an episode of econ talk recently uh on economies that function in extreme environments have i talked about this no that sounds really interesting though Fuck, well i should have done that as a whole thing but basically it was a um, professor at london school of economics that went to uh, Angola, the prison uh -huh. in the United States, and went to just right. go study how their economy works, um, and then went to like Syrian refugee camps and various other spots uh, to try and like figure out, you know, just how, if at all, there is a um, exchange of goods and services and you know accumulation of some kind of capital, something. Basically, is there an economy within these places? Mm -hmm. And as one would expect, there is um, within Angola and within. The Syrian refugee camps, but it's like very bizarre. And a lot of it does come down to not only sort of like, you know, bartering and trading things, but also trying to acquire goodwill. Um, and oh man, one mm. of those fucking interesting things within Angola, this prison system. So previously, they had used tobacco as a medium of exchange, which is something that I'm sure everybody would have suspected is that, you know, we've all seen it in the movies. And if you've been to prison, maybe you know, or, you know, maybe not so much anymore because tobacco is banned in these prisons just to make life extra shitty. But they used to use cigarettes as a medium of exchange because it's perfect as a currency. It's divisible. It lasts. It's, you know, something that everybody wants. And if they don't smoke, they can at least trade it for something else. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the trade that occurs would be like tobacco. So there's like one layer of the economy where people are using it to swap for haircuts uh, and shirt presses and iron, you know, clothes and all that sort of stuff just so they can look good and appear well to the guards and to, you know, any visitors that they have coming by. But tobacco got banned. And so they had to come up with another medium of exchange. And it ended up being 
ramen noodles. <laughs> wow, yeah. And mackerel, tins of mackerel. <laughs> but because the circulation of like mackerel and ramen has just been going on for so long, it split into two different types of currency where they had non-edible mackerel and edible mackerel, which is like of a higher exchange value. So there's like two different coins basically. Um, Can I just quickly ask, what is the value of non-edible mackerel? There is no value uh, value to non-edible right. mackerel, which is why it's so, so they, interesting. They made basically the dollar. <laughs> yeah, so they had fiat. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So they had fiat currency, which was non-edible mackerel. Um, and if you're wondering why they don't have money, it's because money can be used to bribe guards. So like, it's the highest level of contraband. It's essentially the dollar, um, because like if you're going to try and bribe a guard with non-edible mackerel, it'll probably <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> yeah, uh, but there's like absolute ingenious levels of um, financial entrepreneurship within them. Um, where mm. he discovered an entire new economy within it to uh, buy drugs and everything, because you know drug dealers generally don't want to like like sell their drugs for uh, ramen. Um, and mackerel and especially non-edible ramen and mackerel so what they were doing was using uh like gift cards and um they called it the dot economy and what they do is like scratch these gift cards that you could just go redeem anywhere they're like preloaded visas um and credit cards and whatever uh-huh. and the exchange was 14 digits um that would give you like a uh you know ah, the amount of I the see. gift card and that was used as a medium of exchange was like this digit economy <laughs> but wow, anyway the, the fascinating thing to me is that like no matter where you are these like weird forms of currency are going to pop up for the exchange of you know goods and services and because mm-hmm. we are largely i think post scarcity in a number of different ways definitely and this is literally i'm just rehashing this is like like a rehash episode right here but like we're beyond needing goods and services and but people still have the want and desire for fulfillment and you know to be loved basically so that just like has spiraled into this one decentralized instagram economy over in you know the west uh that isn't backed by anything but it's sort of like the clout respect or i don't know if respect is the right word but you know like the clout goodwill and audience of your followers and other followers Mm -hmm. um and you know the centralized version of that over in china which is the state sort of mandating good and poor behavior Hmm. yeah that's really interesting i'm i really want to listen to that episode it's fascinating eh? like Mm. um even the syrian refugee camps is one that i didn't expect because they're apparently not allowed a currency either um but the economy within the Syrian refugee camps has split into what what basically the um, people in charge of it was. I can't remember if it's the UN or who it is, but whoever's running the refugee camps, which was some like global international institution, mm-hmm. was worried about the levels of wealth inequality that had sprung up in the last Syrian refugee camp because yeah, right. some people. It's just like this is the ultimate uh, case study, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of people end up in the Syrian refugee camp, and they all sort of like have a very similar starting uh point you know yep. in terms of what they arrive with which is largely nothing you know sort of like whatever you could put in a backpack and then you arrive mm-hmm. but some people are just naturally good at trade and naturally good at starting a business of some kind or whatever and so these 
Syrian refugees who were like mad at like just fucking talking and making sales and everything were able to grow big businesses and then build additions to their Syrian refugee huts. And so there's some like apparently really lavish living conditions there um, by traders who have been able to just like build fully functioning businesses selling baked goods or like wedding dresses or little empires within the Syrian refugee camps. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's other people who are not very good at it and sort of just subsist on this, you know, base level that the Syrian refugee camp provides. Yeah. Um, it, it's refugee camp situations are crazy. Like I've, um, have studied this a fair bit, like when I was at uni, um, and just for the listeners who like, aren't already aware, like I should point out that when Damon talks about, you know, these businesses springing up in refugee camps, you need to realize that the largest refugee camps, um, in operation in the Middle East, I think the largest in the world is still in Jordan, bordering Syria, um, has a population of around 400,000 people. Yeah. So like they're, they're essentially cities, you know? Yeah. Um, and so the room for entrepreneurship and the provision of um, extra services above what the um, NGOs can offer is like is large. Um, and the demand for different niches of products and services is as high as you would expect in any other city. Not only that, um, they're so industrious, they some are, of these Syrian man, yeah. refugees, they've started exporting their goods to Jordan. So people come to the border of the refugee camp to buy goods from the Syrian refugees. Wow. So it's become its own functioning economy. But yeah. um, the institutional fucking vampires that basically run this shit uh, looked at that and said, oh, we're taking all the lessons from this one refugee camp for another one that they started and trying to clamp down on people's entrepreneurship and started it totally in the middle of fucking nowhere uh and basically didn't want you know people running rampant to make their own businesses or whatever um and that has turned into a nightmare um state basically where uh, i think the employment rate was seven percent whereas the employment rate in this syrian refugee camp was like 67 percent the one that wow. was sort of like allowed to be entrepreneurial uh and i don't know if you're wondering but if, you're, if you are, and if you're not, I'm going to tell you anyway, um, what the method or currency of exchange is, because again, they don't really have access to a like reasonable currency. It's mm -hmm. New Zealand milk powder. Uh wow, there you go. <laughs> yeah. That's so, awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they go to the, the one thing that they can buy from like the, um, you know, mandated supermarket is mm -hmm. like milk powder. So people run in there, they buy fuck tons of milk powder, and then that's uh, divisible. It's long lasting. It's one of those mm. like, ultimate currencies that everybody can use um you know <laughs> yeah right that's amazing yeah just as a little like anecdote i can't recall the name of the particular camp now but this camp that i was referring to in jordan one of my old tutors while i was studying um played a leading role in a project to um, deploy solar power to those camps which would like allow the majority of refugees to be able to use their lights at night time um, which was like a huge difference maker in people being able to um, continue running their businesses into the evening. Um, so like run like small restaurants and shit like that. Yeah. Um, and also for like children to be able to continue studying and reading and doing homework and stuff like that, um, even after the sun had set, which um, mm. I thought was pretty awesome. Like it's so cool to hear, even though they're unfortunately few and far between, you know, these stories of resources being just... Um, well spent and making a difference for people in need like this yeah one other thing that i would point out as well is that and maybe they even talked about this in in the podcast you were listening to but i think in these uh camps where 
these sort of like bootleg economies are allowed to flourish, I imagine there would be a lot less trading of sex for goods, which would probably be obviously a very like strong benefit of, <laughs> of that. Um, yeah. Because, you know, there are mothers who, uh, who have to flee uh, with their children and enter refugee camps without the like male uh, head of the family as they are in, in a lot of uh, Middle Eastern cultures. I'm not just saying head of the family in like a sexist sense. That's kind of just the role that men play. Um, and without without that pillar of support, like a lot of women do end up having to just, you know, sell their bodies to um, keep their children alive. So yeah. when when women can, can bake flatbread or like nice baked goods or they can like sew like wedding dresses, for example, like you mentioned, they have a means of raising themselves out of that desperation, which is super important. Mm, yeah 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 no it's fascinating it it's like yeah you can always you, if that doesn't tell you something about like the nature of humanity then you know i guess like nothing really will because it's just essentially you can always sort of count on people buying trading and swapping to meet their own desires and uh endless need for fulfillment mm -hmm. um whether it be like being appearing in a club which just feels a little lamer um or the swapping of milk powder for goods you know yeah yeah which i personally <laughs> dig a little more but then whatever it's because nobody because i hate social media and i suck at it <laughs> um while we're on the topic of syria just quickly as well i wanted to just mention that there's some really cool um, reconstruction happening in Syria now that the, the country has largely returned to order. Wow, really? Um, I haven't even had an update on that. Yeah, like it's, um, it's, let me just quickly send you this. Obviously, it's slow going and there's still um, huge amounts of progress to be made. But there's, um, did you get that link? Yep. But they're, wow. they're managing to, um, to um, refurbish a lot of these historical centers. Um, although obviously a lot of it has has unfortunately been destroyed, working hard on a, on sort of trying to restore some of these the the really beautiful uh, parts of the big cities in Syria, which is awesome. Interestingly, I've seen uh, the price tag of two hundred and fifty billion dollars for the construction um, floated, which you know probably sounds about right. It'll be fascinating to see where that money comes from. If it's it, it's already begun. And I wonder how much of that money is coming from the likes of Russia and China. Yeah, I was just thinking that. <laughs> and that's kind of been uh, unacknowledged, or if it is acknowledged, might be framed as, you know, um, the abuse of their influence oh, of over Syria, as opposed, to, um, as opposed to something positive. Yeah, but the white man's anyway. allowed to stroll in there and, you know, essentially enact their... Um, pathetic uh policies surrounding you know off the back of their like little mathematical equations that maybe if we just um like teach these africans how to you know or these middle easterns how to conduct themselves in a proper manner yeah. uh that they'll progress versus like the actual investment and treating them like human beings and seeing you know investment opportunities in these countries yeah, like, yeah. It's just, yeah, it's ceaselessly uh, offensive, <laughs> you know, like yeah. Western development efforts. It really uh, is. And you just see the amount of progress that they can make when you actually have people going in there and being like, oh, you know, this is like a reasonable place for development and to set up business and everything. What was that? Sorry. Um, it's like, it's, uh, what did I just say? It was like, um, when they are treated as like human beings, like when we were talking mm -hmm. about China and Afghanistan um, and yeah, yeah, as like yeah. legitimate 
investment opportunities and ways to collaborate actual progress occurs versus going in there Jeffrey Sachs style and just sort of like, you know, treating them like morons and, and lesser, lesser people. Mm. It's just, yeah, uh, no, that's I, it. Fucking Jeffrey Sachs. I can't stand that cunt. But like, you know, they'll win. We're too busy squabbling about uh, <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. Well, uh, let's start to wrap it up. Mm-hmm. We've been going for a little while. Thank you for sticking with us if you've made it this far. Hope you learned something interesting. Uh, as always, hit us up if you think there's anything interesting that we should check out and discuss on the pod. Um, we love hearing from you. If you have questions or suggestions for topics to look into, that's amazing. Last bit as well is that you can um, subscribe to us on Patreon if you want to support the podcast. Yeah, we've got to be doing that soon enough. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't think coming we had up anything. to July, so we Plans. are going to do. Well, we, we were going to do an extra long Patreon episode to make up for the shitty fucking audio in the last one. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll do like a, a double whammy, like two hour Patreon episode for July. Yeah, sick, sick. We can get into maybe yeah some funky shit. I'll do yeah, some yeah. research. Make Absolutely. back that HGN money. <laughs> <laughs> fucking a um so yeah if you are interested in stocks or markets uh you can subscribe on patreon for access to monthly exclusive episodes where we focus strictly on that and if there are any stocks or companies that you want us to look into then you can hit us up and we will do our best to accommodate your requests Um, otherwise we talk about stocks that we're personally interested in Mm. which also rock but you know um, you should get what you're paying for so anyway uh, that's us Uh, take it easy share the podcast with your homeboys people seem to like it so you know they might too absolutely alright peace out alright take care see you later Thank you.